This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the programme this week, we look at startling survey findings that often end up in our news but don't always stand up to much scrutiny, especially when you look at who's ordered up the research that they're based on. And a leading local and staunchly independent radio station is changing hands after more than 50 years on the air. Is it the end of an era, or more of the same? But first, reports of alarm over so-called race-based healthcare kicked off last Monday and then sparked a strong reaction that ran all week. But how strong was the actual story, and how did the media do with the all-important details? Auckland surgeons are sounding the alarm over a new equity index-based waiting list that critics are labelling divisive. The new system uses five categories to place patients on a medical wait list, including clinical priority, time spent waiting, location and deprivation level. But it's the fifth category, ethnicity, that's raised concerns. That was News Talk ZB News kicking off at 5am on Monday and those clinical concerns among unnamed Auckland surgeons quickly kicked on to become a national issue right across the media and a big political debate also about so-called race-based healthcare. Now the story was based on a scoop from News Talk ZB's political journalists Jason Walls and Barry Soper and it led the ZB News bulletins all day on Monday and it also filled the front page of its stablemate the New Zealand Herald the same day under the heading... Surgeons express unease at new scoring tool, describing it as ethically challenging. That tool being the Equity Adjuster Score, which aims to reduce inequity in the health system by prioritising patients according to a balance of those five factors that you heard there in News Talk ZB's 5am news. But moments after that, the host of ZB's early edition show, Kate Hawksby, told her listeners this. Auckland surgeons are now being dictated to on... Ethnicity grounds over who should get surgery first. Māori and Pacific Islanders waiting for surgery. They're being moved to the top of the very lengthy hospital waiting lists. Now there, Kate Hawksby was echoing the news story on the News Talk ZB website, which was headlined like this. Auckland surgeons are being dictated to on ethnicity grounds over who should go under the knife first. Though later, that was changed to Auckland surgeons must now consider ethnicity in prioritising patients for operations because the equity adjuster score doesn't move people to the top of waiting lists on ethnicity alone, or dictate to surgeons for that matter. Now the story went on to say that some surgeons, who spoke on condition of anonymity, said that the new scoring tool was medically indefensible, and one told the Herald this. There's no place for elitism in medicine, and the medical fraternity in this country is disturbed by these developments. The quite what elitism the surgeon was worried about there wasn't made clear. And on ZB's early edition show, Kate Hawksby then went on to tell the listeners this about how the story came about in the first place. A, um, <laughs> Barry Soper did this, um, does this story for, did this story for ZB and he contacted the Te Whata Order Business Support Manager, a guy called Daniel Hayes, and he claimed he didn't know, he'd never heard of ZB or Barry or didn't, I think he thought the whole thing was a prank and he didn't want to talk about it, but he was the one who sent an email saying, hey team, heads up, this is a new criteria um, that you'll be, you know, lining up your patients accordingly. So basically telling them Māori Pacific patients first, kei nā mihi. And um, anyway, he didn't want to talk about it when they approached him. 
Now, that email from the Tafatu Ora staffer, as reported by the New Zealand Herald, did inform colleagues about new criteria for patients, but it didn't say they'd be lining up Māori and Pacific patients first, as Kate Hawkesby said there. Now, the story in the Herald did also seek to explain why the equity adjuster score was being deployed in the first place. It quoted the Health Minister, Aisha Verrill, Sir Colin Tukoitonga, a leading expert in Pacifica Health, and Tafatu Ora's Dr Mike Shepherd, who told ZB the inequity was complicated and required a sophisticated solution. And... It's important to note that ethnicity is not the only element considered in the scoring system. And at the end of Kate Hawkesby's early edition show, General Practice New Zealand Chair Dr Brian Betty told Kate Hawkesby... We've seen this in other areas, for, us, for instance, immunisations um, for fluvax. Uh, Māori and Pacifica are given access to immunisations at a younger age because they have worse outcomes at a younger age in New Zealand. All the data backs that up. But before they'd heard context like that, early risers listening to ZB and hearing about Māori and Pacifica patients getting to the front of the surgery queue were firing off angry text messages to Kate Hawkesby like this. Kate, the person who leaked the medical apartheid should get a medal. What else is this racist government hiding in all areas? Um, Kate, I registered as Māori with the health system, even though I'm not. No questions asked. If you can't beat them, join them. Uh, Kate, outrageous that New Zealand Health now prioritised for Māori ahead of urgent need. Um, preposterous to have an apartheid system based on race. Surely this is New Zealand democracies uh, dis- dismantled. And at 6am, Kate Hawkesby handed over to her husband, Mike Hosking. News Talk ZB. Morning and welcome today. The new ethnicity score in health. If you are Murray, get to the front of the queue. The Nats go after the game. And it was only after that that Tafatu Ora's Dr Mike Shepard told Mike Hosking Murray and Pacifica patients might only get one or two extra points out of 100 on that score because of their ethnicity. And clinical need was still the main driver. OK, and, and adding the extra factors in, so two people, both 62, both with cardiovascular situations, one Maori, one isn't. The Maori one gets to the front of the queue, correct? No, so it's not about getting to the front of the queue. I think what we're doing is, um, you know, it's about adding uh, some, some weightings uh, and it's about uh, keeping an eye on the clinical prioritisation. But nonetheless, Mike Hosking said this in one of his characteristically strident editorials. We are all equal or the country is shot. And as we sit here, I think it's more shot than equal. Now, after Mike Hosking on Monday, Kerry Woodham took over on ZB and devoted all three hours of her talkback show to that issue. If they feel others have been prioritised over them because of race, whether it's true or not, that's going to make people extremely unhappy and in some cases angry. And many getting in touch with her were, having been given that impression, even though being in the top-ranked ethnicity doesn't necessarily mean being at the front of the queue for surgery. And Woodham's second caller through that day seemed convinced that he was being pushed down the waiting list. Two specialists in a clinic, which are the same race, but different race to me, Mm. I feel that I've been, I suppose, not looked after as as good as some other people that I've heard have got their eyes done. Now there, Kerry Woodham didn't take the opportunity to clarify with that guy why he thought surgeons from another ethnic background might be shortchanging him because of his race. Now while many callers were clearly exercised about what they saw as racism or favouritism, Kerry Woodham told listeners that she was trying to introduce a bit of equity on her show that day by reserving some talkback lines for Māori people to call in. They've had historically low participation rates in talkback, so we'll keep three lines for my... No. You're all very welcome. Just a joke, she insisted, but one that clearly some of her listeners didn't get. 
Why three dedicated lines for Māori only? They have the same opportunity to pick up the phone and ring your show. Quite disappointed you've fallen into this trap. It was a joke! Anyway, maybe it's not that funny after all. Maybe this is the way of the future. So, joke or not, in the end, it wasn't all that easy to tell. Now, on the same show, National's health spokesperson was taking this more seriously, and he was choosing his words very carefully when telling Kerry Woodham how the equity adjuster score weights the five variables, something Kerry Woodham admitted she'd misunderstood. Of course, I assumed that all the factors would be given equal weighting, but that's a very good point you make, that some of the factors might be taken more into consideration than others. Mm, this is why I, why I asked the question, and yeah. uh, I even followed up with further questions saying, well, uh, give me an example of someone in this situation. How would the ethnicity weighting apply? But while the front page of Tuesday's Herald then reported that Dr Etty had slammed the policy as offensive and wrong, it also pointed to an explainer inside the paper. Now, this article was by the Herald's Nicholas Jones, and it was first published on the Herald's website the previous afternoon, and it explained that the issue which flared up after ZB's scoop was in fact nothing new. Auckland District Health Board used ethnicity prioritisation when working through waiting lists that had been swollen by COVID-19 disruption, Nicholas Jones explained, and he reported that former chairman Pat Snedden had said back then it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reset an unfair system. And at the time, other DHBs followed suit, and Nicholas Jones didn't exactly bury the lead when he wrote all about it for the Herald at that time under the headline which DHBs could prioritise Māori and Pacific patients. Now, that change was embedded in Te Whātu Ora a year ago, he explained, after a Health Quality and Safety Commission investigation in 2019 had challenged health services to stamp out institutional racism, which, it said, severely harms and kills Māori. And Nicholas Jones also pointed to other research into health service inequities that had prompted the adoption of the Equity Adjuster Score in the first place, and that a government task force which had delivered a report on how backlogs could be cleared last year also backed Tafatu Ora's approach. Once high clinical priority cases have been addressed, priority must be given to excessively long-waiting patients with emphasis on the longest-waiting Māori and Pacific patients. There are numerous examples of inequities in many planned care services. Initiatives must be put in place to resolve this. And some initiatives that were, were also reported in the news at the time without controversy. For instance, in August last year, Fatu Ora Tetokaro's interim director, Tracy Shebley, told Radio Wātea how they responded to what she said was a Health New Zealand mandate to catch up on the treatment of Māori and Pacifica patients who'd been sitting on waiting lists. We've reviewed all our uh, Māori and Pacific patients who have been waiting longer than 320 days in Titai Tokoro and our team's now working really hard on scheduling those patients. This will mean that some patients will need to travel to other hospitals for probably for surgery more than appointments, um, but in some cases we will be bringing clinical teams up here. Newsroom's political editor Joe Moyer pointed out that up until February this year, ethnicity was only one of two factors deciding the waitlist in Auckland, and the equity adjuster score formula was a response to surgeons' concerns that social deprivation and geographical location also needed to be included, as well as time spent waiting on the surgical lists, and that varies from medical service to medical service. And one of the new formula's creators, Duncan Bliss, told Joe Moyer that, even so, clinical need always takes precedence and the equity adjuster score doesn't interfere with that. 
Indeed, the equity adjuster score is designed from a health perspective, he said, not a political one. Now, possibly with that in mind, at the Prime Minister's post-Cabinet press conference on Monday, Joe Moyer wondered whether that might not have been controversial at all in the first place if the criteria had been listed as just life expectancy rather than ethnicity. And she also wrote that Tafatu Ora had tried to get Newsroom to remove the name of her source, Duncan Bliss, and instead attribute his comments to an approved spokesperson. And she wasn't pleased about that. Experts involved in the design of our health system are exactly who journalists should be allowed to speak to. And the honest and refreshing comments from Bliss are exactly what those so incensed about ethnicity need to hear. Indeed they are. And she was later able to tell her social media followers that Tafatu Ora had called back to say that this was not handled appropriately and not the way they do things. Let's hope so. Well, on Tuesday, the chair of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons said in a statement that the equity adjuster score was not a zero-sum game, putting Māori and Pacific Health above the health of other people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And while the Herald turned all that into a story, Andrew McCormick was unavailable for further comment in the media, but only because he was doing his day job in Middlemore Hospital in a theatre operating all day. Now, the same day, Fakata Māori, Māori Television's Will Trafford, also pointed out that the policy appears to have been going until February without any incident, until now. Today, partisan media and political spin doctors, the worst kind of doctors, have elected to land a few points in the lead-up to October's election. Now, News Talk ZB and The Herald will take issue with Trafford's partisan media accusation there, doubtless reckoning that they've brought to light something of genuine public interest that was buried in bureaucracy until now. But Will Trafford pointed to four more major reports in the past 12 years detailing health disparities, and he said they showed why Māori waiting list prioritisation should have happened years ago. And with that in mind, it was apt that the day the story broke on News Talk ZB and in The Herald, the Waitangi Tribunal Health Services and Outcomes Inquiry hearings resumed again into claims concerning grievances relating to health services for Māori. And anyone watching the live stream of that would have heard... There's been a long waiting list for those to be addressed as well. The Y2109 Kaupo Māori claim was lodged by Mr Marka Tibble some 15 years ago in August 2008. It was lodged out of a concern regarding the overall poor level of health, well-being and quality of life being experienced by Kaupo Māori and their whānau. And there was not so much coverage of that in the news this past week. But as we've heard, plenty about the arguments between those who believe in a one-size-should-fit-all-New-Zealanders type of equality in health, butting up against those who say real equality requires equity, which interventions like the Equity Adjuster Score might just help deliver. There were plenty of other stories this past week generating political heat for the media as well, not least the decline and fall of another cabinet minister, which had News Hub's political editor Jenna Lynch stretching to sum up what the Prime Minister might have made of it all, like this last Wednesday. Jenna, this is messy. What on earth is going on? Bread and butter is officially toast. Hipkins must feel like he's on some kind of sick carnival ride, bouncing from blunder to scandal to shambles to debacle and back again. 
And that's a bit like how we felt watching some of the news this past week as well. On Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, our weekly catch-up with Knights here on RNZ National, I took a look at that, other departed Cabinet Ministers' transgressions coming to light, a tough-on-crime National Party policy triggering the media after those Mad Max mongrel mob scenes from the Bay of Plenty, and election fever gripping the media when there's still four months to go. And we also mark the passing of the grandfather of whistleblowing, the Pentagon Papers leaker, Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, How can you measure the jeopardy that I'm in, Uh, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 115 years, or other ludicrous uh, amounts like that, to the penalty that has been paid uh, already by 50,000 American families here and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese families. It would be absolutely presumptuous of me to pity myself in that context, and I certainly don't, and I'd be ashamed of myself. If you missed it, you'll find this week's Midweek Media Watch on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it available for free wherever you get your podcasts. It's not unusual to see or hear a startling statistic in a news headline these days which makes you think, is that right? Or maybe even, is that right? And frequently, that's the idea, because the research or the survey the supposedly newsworthy finding comes from was specifically designed to get attention or spread a message in the media for whomever paid for it. Hayden Donnell looks at some classic cases of that now, and a new one which took it to a new level. Anyone logging into onenews.co.nz from their home office last weekend would have received some disturbing news about their apparently deteriorating bodies. Under the headline, Research Reveals What Remote Workers Could Look Like in the Future, the site ran a series of pictures of a digitally generated model dubbed Anna, along with a story describing her as a vision of what working from home could do to people by the year 2100. As it turns out, not commuting into the office is more harmful than you might have thought. Here's what it did to Anna, according to One News. Anna is a grotesque figure, with claw hands, swollen limbs, red eyes and a hunched back due to consistent use of laptops and smartphones, poor posture and an unhealthy diet. Terrible news, and even worse that this projection was apparently based on research. Except, as it turns out, it wasn't. A cursory glance at the story's origins shows Anna was actually invented seemingly out of whole cloth by the Scottish company Furniture at Work UK. Hardly a disinterested party when it comes to the working from home debate. It seems rather than robust research, the story was a barely disguised ad for office furniture. In fact, the link to the Furniture at Work UK blog introducing Anna later redirected to a page selling ergonomic desk chairs after it started being included in news stories. Good web traffic if you can get it. One News eventually deleted its story, but it was far from alone in spreading Anna across the internet. Stuff also ran a story on Furniture at Work UK's invention with the headline, Remote Worker of the Future Could Look Like This, Say Researchers. They were following in the footsteps of a host of international outlets, including the Daily Mail and the New York Post. It's not the first time Furniture at Work UK has employed this PR trick to great success. In March, it convinced the Daily Mail to run a story on its similarly made-up vision of what offices could look like in the year 2050. 
It's also not the only entity using dicey research or so-called study results to garner uncritical media coverage. In May, one news reported on a study that it said cemented the theory that garlic can help treat the flu or even COVID-19. As it turns out, the non-peer-reviewed study it was citing was commissioned by the lobby group for Australia's Garlic Producers. Experts described it as extremely early lab bench research, which is unlikely to prove useful in clinical settings. The list goes on. Back in 2018, stuff reported on what it called the surprising link between exercise and infidelity, while nzherald.co.nz ran a story about what it said were the most unfaithful professions. Both reports relied on unscientific, self-selected surveys filled in by users of the infidelity-friendly dating website Ashley Madison, hardly carefully weighted polling, and good exposure for the website. Presenting arguments in the form of a study result can also help more credible, less infidelity-friendly organisations dodge media scrutiny. This is how News Talk ZB's Roman Travers reported the conclusions of a tax survey carried out by the consultancy firm Sapira back in April. How many times in recent decades have you heard the call for a better and fairer tax system? How many times have we heard governments saying that the tax system needs to be looked at? Well, I've got some good news for those at the upper end of income earning who may have been wondering when the tax axe was about to fall, forcing them to hemorrhage more. It turns out our tax system is pretty fair and equitable after all. Case closed, or so it sounded. In actual fact, tax researcher Max Rashbrook, Oxfam and tax justice Aotearoa, among others, all raised concerns over that research which they said failed to consider the amount of income the wealthiest New Zealanders are earning through capital gains. The tax consultancy firm that commissioned Sapira, Oliver Shaw, admitted the study was an attempt to get ahead of IRD research, which it thought might cast doubts on the fairness of our tax system. Those concerns were well founded. That IRD research was released the following week, and it concluded the wealthiest 300-odd New Zealand families were contributing an effective tax rate less than that of minimum wage workers. In the eyes of some experts, the reporting on these types of studies highlights a weakness in the media's defences. Most publications would never dream of running advertising for free or publishing a highly ideological press release verbatim, but they may do so if the same information is presented in the form of research or study results. The Science Media Centre recently highlighted the use of what it calls cloaked science, where technical language, difficult to understand graphs and charts, or seemingly scientific data are deployed to hide a political, ideological or financial agenda. Dr Sarah-Jane O'Connor, a teaching fellow at Victoria University's Centre for Science and Society, joined me to talk about how reporters and editors can spot less than credible studies in order to report their results a little more sceptically. Kia ora, Sarah-Jane. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Have you noticed that if questionable info is presented in the form of a study or research, it's more likely to get media coverage and uncritical media coverage at that? I think what's happening is that science and research and scientists have a lot of trust already. It's good that the public and the media trust scientists, but it means that people who might want to get their own messages out 
whether it's, you know, their own company's PR or maybe even misinformation might kind of jump onto that bandwagon and use that same terminology, the study, the research, you know, new, new research published to borrow that ear of credibility and try and get their own messages across. Is it something you've noticed increasing recently that kind of, I don't want to call it junk science, it's sometimes called cloaked science, increasingly getting coverage in the media? Um, I was a journalist about 10 years ago and it was definitely happening, definitely seeing things come into our um, into our newsroom inbox in that kind of vein. So I'm not sure if I'd say it's increasing. Maybe there's just more people trying to, to do this. Maybe there's just sort of a, a greater quantity, but I don't know that it's a, maybe a, de- a deliberate increase. How do reporters and editors not fall for it? The stuff that journalists are doing all of the time, so trust but verify, wanting to have a look at where this information is coming from. So there's a few key things to look for. I'd always be looking to see where research has been published. Not all research does get published, or or we might want to report on it early because it's really important. So we saw that a lot during 2020 in the early phases of COVID-19. We wanted to know what was happening quickly. And um, unfortunately, academic publishing takes a very long time. But it does show that there's been a little bit of robustness around the process that a few other people, a few other experts have looked at this research and checked that it's legitimate, that they have done what they said they've done. Um, And then I would be looking to see who's actually done this research, who's paid for it, are there any conflicts of interest, if it's funded by a company that might benefit from this research or survey or whatever it might be, that should raise some some alarm bells. There can still be good research funded by industry and companies, but it should still um, investigate it a little bit further. I always say if we're looking at things like surveys, we need to be clear. It's really hard to do a good survey to make sure that you're actually getting a a fair sample of, of people who might respond. So if, for instance, a company was doing a survey just of their members or the people who are signed up for their newsletters or whatever might, that might be, that's going to be a very biased sample. It's not going to be representative of a wider wider population. And then we see a lot in, in health um, where we might see a new study come out, especially things like, you know, such and such causes cancer or whatever it might be. And buried way down in the details, we might find out actually the study was done on 10 mice and it's not at all applicable to humans or at least not yet. And if a journalist or an editor does get a study into their inbox from PR company, whatever, and they suspect that it's not too robust, what should they do? Yeah, so journalists in New Zealand are really lucky. We have a group called the Science Media Centre, which I used to work for, um, which is a publicly funded group that is absolutely there to help with this. Um, And they can also put journalists in touch with experts who can look at that study and give an independent view on whether this is something worth doing. Those headlines that we see can be really influential, once they're published, and yes, they might get corrected later on or get retracted later on, but some people will have only seen that first story and they might believe that scientific information. So I do think it's really important to stop and take that time and take that responsibility to make sure that what's being reported is as accurate as, as a journalist can, can figure out in those time pressures. Thanks very much, Sarah-Jane. Thank you, Hayden. Hayden Donnell there looking at the latest in a long line of supposedly startling stories generated by surveys or research from people with a product to push. Earlier this month here on Media Watch, the spokesperson for the commercial radio industry warned that the head-to-head rivalry between the big two companies that dominate it isn't always good for it and that rivalry was centre stage when the New Zealand Radio Awards were handed out recently. But one award that night wasn't gobbled up by the big two, 
and that was the one for best local station of the year. The winner is, and please welcome to the stage, One Double X Radio Bay of Plenty. Now that's an award they've won before, more than once, during more than 50 years on the air in the Eastern Bay of Plenty. Radio Fakatani Limited was granted a broadcasting licence back in 1970, and they valued their independence back then, and it turns out they still do. One Double X generates its own local news in Fakatane, and when an emergency strikes, they're ready. The Mayor of Whakatane, Bob Byrne, has appealed to all residents to try to stay calm while the earthquakes continue. Bob Byrne says police and traffic officers are checking out for damage, damage and injuries and council staff are checking to make sure access ways and roads are safe for people to use. He's urged people to listen to their radio station 1XX for information. That was 1XX announcer Chris Bullen broadcasting after the Edgecombe earthquakes back in 1987. Now in 2005, 1XX won the radio award for best news coverage after what was reported at the time as a 1 in 500 year flood the year before and when Cyclone Debbie struck 12 years after that 1XX got the message out to locals then as well and the national media also who couldn't get their reporters to the scene quickly enough. And even though 1XX later lost money from businesses that were shut down by the flooding, it gave away advertising to help those local firms get up and running again and also raised more than $60,000 through a charitable trust. And for all that, 1XX received the top New Zealand Radio Award in 2018, Radio Broadcaster of the Year. Congratulations to Glenn Smith and all the team. Glenn Smith was again accepting the local station award at this year's Radio Awards, alongside long-serving 1XX presenter Colin McGee, who had some news. And he's only just sold the station. It's going to remain locally owned and operated. So a good time to honour Glenn Smith, 49 years with 1XX. So, after almost half a century at 1XX and much of it at the helm, what now for the managing director, Glenn Smith? It is going to be the same sort of station and it is going to continue in local ownership. I also wanted to have people that knew the marketplace, knew the area, were capable of growing the business. Andy and Sarah Galbraith, who have bought it, are capable of doing that. So are they local local residents or maybe even had some connection with the station previously? Well, Andy has actually uh, worked as a part-time announcer for 11 years for XX. Ah. <laughs> but he and his wife have a uh, successful video production company. It's an opportunity to basically merge the operations and already it seems to be working quite well. Well, what about you though, Glenn? 49 not out seems a shame. Are, are you going to be able to get the full half century and stick with the station in some capacity? I'm actually working in the sales area. We'll be doing that for, for quite a while. When I started with the station as a university student, having been involved with student radio, in 1978, I became the sales manager. In 1981, I became the general manager. So, yes, my future going forward is in the sales area. Well, in all the time that you've been in radio, Glenn, and, and at One X, you would have seen so many other smaller stations become part of the bigger networks and sometimes their output networked out of the major centres. So few. Uh, in fact, One X really an outlier in being fully independent with a, a news operation and a broadcast centre right there 
have you had to protect that? Were they interested in taking you over at any point over these years? Both of the uh, networks have done due diligence. I've had some interesting offers, but the people that have taken over, the only ones that were local, that was really important to me. It's really a good outcome for me. When we spoke last time on this program, it was 2018, and the station had just won uh, the Radio Broadcaster of the Year, the absolute sort of supreme award for the last three years running. That award has been won by one individual, Mike Hosking of News Talk ZB, but <laughs> five years ago you carried it off as a station. That was in response to, uh, I think, news coverage of the Edgecombe floods and surrounds that, that were disastrous back then. Do you still have that news staff, and is that really you know, a core? Has it has been difficult trying to keep that? It's a very good question because, in fact, our news operation has expanded in terms of staffing by 50%, and that is thanks to the Public Interest Journalism Fund. So we've actually got three full-time journalists here. As you know, running news is an expensive operation that really just enhances our local news offering. That fund's out of time, though, isn't it now, Glenn? So is that something you'll be able to keep going? We're kind of hoping that we'll either be able to uh, generate enough income to keep it going, or we'll be looking for some support or sponsorship maybe locally to um, continue that. But we, we are very capable of running our local news operation, which actually has 83 local bulletins a week, plus agri and uh, political bulletins as well. We've got a really young, uh, enthusiastic news team, and we're really proud of them. Well, you wrote an article that we found online a few years back, several tips, a list of tips on running a standalone station. I don't think you were too aware of it. Maybe you don't remember uh, writing it. but um, It's a great article, actually. (laughs) (laughs) If you do say so yourself. Uh, But you did say one thing that's important is to be a member of organisations as an independent station. But interestingly... You also said here, and this is, you know, some years ago, inclusiveness was important. You said, we want to have everybody in the tent, all people from all walks of life, young, old, diverse backgrounds and ethnicities. We try to reflect all of our area and its people. Kind of easy to say that, but this is, do you have to kind of compromise on that a little bit? Because if you have to exist in the commercial market, is it harder to actually achieve? It's it's a good question. I actually am very proud of the diversity of, of our staff. I haven't found that difficult, in fact, rewarding. I think people really appreciate we recognise individuality and diversity. And also on your list of hints for prospective standalone station uh, executives, uh, you wrote about truth and trust. um, And you also said, we refuse to be drawn into spurious social media posting and everything that attracts. We want to be straight down the middle to maintain our trust with audience and advertisers. I wonder, is this also becoming harder? Because one of the interesting trends is people setting up uh, news groups and so on in local areas. Yeah, I think that um, people have an expectation that we'll set a higher bar. Where this really comes into play is also in uh, civil defence situations. You know, when we had tsunami evacuation, there was a lot of misinformation coming to us. You know, we do see all the rumours and we have people calling us and so on. And not only do we have a news team, but we also have some very experienced people like Colin McGee, who have been in the situations, uh, look after this sort of information. So most of our people um, have the ability to actually make sure that everything is uh, straight down the line as 
we are a member of the Emergency Services Coordinating Committee for the Eastern Bay of Plenty, and that's all of the emergency services. Uh, we're the only private organisation that's a member of that committee. And I believe that if we weren't delivering solid information that could be relied on, we wouldn't be part of it. I would just say, finally, Glenn, also in your list of uh, tips on running a standalone station, number 14, humility. And you wrote this possibly with tongue-in-cheek. We are, we believe, New Zealand's most awarded radio station. We're very proud of that, but we don't want to be, uh, we want to be relatable and accessible to everyone, so we're not going to overemphasise that position. Yes. Um, one of the most exciting things about the um, radio awards was that when I watched all the nominees coming up, a lot of those people who work for the networks started with us. That's exciting. Uh, the awards are important. They're great uh, for our area. It's a benchmark when you're a standalone operation and you have to um, aspire to greater heights. It's a way of, of measuring things, really. Yeah, you got morning tea with the mayor, I think, when 1XX won the Broadcaster of the Year Prize in 2018. Yes. Now that you just got the relatively minor award of local station of the year, anything from the mayor this time round? Uh, not yet. That was Glenn Smith, the outgoing managing director of the independent radio station based in Whakatane, 1XX, the winner of Local Station of the Year at the New Zealand Radio Awards earlier this month. And as you heard there, after 49 years with the station, Glenn Smith's now leaving it in the hands of new local owners. Well, that's all we have for you this weekend in Media Watch, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday during nights with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.